Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network, uh, New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel for the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Kwasi Kunaru about his 2019 book, Our Own Way in This Part of the World, Biography of an African Community, Culture, and Nation, published by Duke University Press. Dr. Kunaru is John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Chair and Professor in the Department of Africana and Latin American Studies at Colgate University. Dr. Kunaru, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, could you uh, please get us started uh, by letting us know a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was born in the island of Jamaica. Uh, my family moved to Brooklyn, New York, where I still live in the latter part of the 1980s. And so I've been in the States for over 30 years. And my work in the history of Africa was in many ways influenced by my own family history project that I began as an undergraduate. And so it just so happened that as I was doing the family history project, which involved all interviews, archival research, at the same time, I decided to become a double major as an undergraduate that included history. And so the rest has, has been um, a continuation of that particular work since I was 18 years old. Um, and how um, how do you came to, I mean, uh, reading through the interview uh, of this text, it, it uh, was very clear to me that this is a, a book that you've been thinking a lot uh, over many years, that you have even written other books while you've been thinking about this one. Can you tell us how you came uh, to, to write this book and where were some of the um, things that you were pondering as you were trying to figure out how to write it? Sure. And, and that's an equally great question because the book itself grew out of this family history project that I referenced a moment ago where I had a dream. And in that dream, I was told that if I wanted to know more about this great, great, great grandmother, I needed to visit Ghana. And I had not been to Ghana before. I knew very little about Ghana. And so I took a plane and I essentially went on this spirit of the dream to find out more. And my travels took me initially to, from Accra, the capital, to Kofodja, and in a village called Ayoko. And from there, I went to Kumasi. And then I found my way to Techiman, where the subject of the book, Nanakofi Donko, lived. And I kept on hearing all these stories you know, about him. And at the time, I was also a graduate student um, doing my PhD work. And so I sort of cast aside these stories I'm hearing about Kofi Donko. Um, ironically, my project d- developed into one that was about indigenous medicine and healing, sort of our history of the present about these healers. And so the more I interviewed, the more I had conversations, the more I felt comfortable in indigenous language the more I kept hearing about Kofi Donko. And all the while, I'm trying to put his stories to the side because he was not my focus, precisely because he had passed away by the time I reached Techimon in 2000, 2001. He passed away in 1995. And so um, the stories kept on coming and I kept on trying to push him to the side as much as I could. And finally, around 2005 or 2007, I said, look, I need to find out more about this fascinating character I keep hearing about. And that was the genesis for the book. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, what you were hearing, um, you know, sort of like the historical scene. Um, one of the things that it's really, really interesting about your book is that you, you uh, introduce this um concept of the communography, you know, which I guess it's, 
simplistically could be addressed as the you know biography of a community, but obviously it's it's it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So, in telling us a little bit about Kofi uh, Donko, uh, who he was, and why he captured your imagination, uh, how do you get from th- that um, sort of fascination and interest to developing this notion of the communography? I owe a lot to the stories I heard about Kofi Donko for the spark for that idea of a communography, because you're absolutely right. A communography is not concerned with the individual life story. It's concerned with the story of a pivotal person who has or offers a wide angle view of their community and how the lives of community members, visitors, strangers, uh, even enemies ricochet against that person. And so in the end, uh, I was enthralled by not just the Kofi about Kofi Donko, the healer, the blacksmith, the woodcarver, the drummer, the family head, and much more, the intellectual. Uh, I was fascinated equally by you know all the thousands of patients and trainees who were trained as healers under Kofi Donko, all the um, numerous um, scholars who essentially cut their teeth um, through Kofi Donko's intellect. Um, all the um, graduate students whose PhD theses benefited in Kofi Donko's knowledge. So I was concerned about how all these lives both reflected something about the individual Kofi Donko, but also how Kofi Donko, you know, was able to have a far-reaching uh, effect, um, even if it's you know minutely upon the trajectory of so many people. For a person who did not leave the boundaries of Ghana, you know, for the most of his life, as far as I can tell, Um, you know, he became regional and became global through his therapy, through his healing techniques, but also through the deployment of his wisdom and intellect that was able to be carried by, you know, those graduate students, those scholars, and those who came to learn from him. And so in many ways, he became global um, through the range of, of ideas you know, that he offered. And I do argue in the book that Kofi Donko should be considered an intellect precisely because his ideas uh, was used to revolutionize at least the 1970s and 80s, uh, a portion of medical anthropology that viewed, um, actually, actually, I would say African studies writ large that viewed uh, African you know, spirituality and African spiritual culture and African healing uh, approaches as simply a function of so-called witchcraft, right? The idea that um, these therapeutics uh, were somehow uh, theologically diabolical, that they were the uh, Christian inverse <laughs> and therefore demonic, you know, outputs of these superstitious and uh, unknowing people, when quite the opposite was true. Kofi Donko was very much empirical. Kofi Donko was very much about using uh, what nature provided and be able to read and decode uh, that nature to offer social, uh, intellectual, as well as uh, physiological therapeutics. And um, that's actually really interesting and, and, and probably leads me to um, going a little bit into the book. because so I, I, I realized that um, one of the most interesting choices is how your first chapter is about is dedicated to the uh, so the ontology the, the ontological world in, in which Kofi Donko lived and and I think I, I imagine that um, and you will let me know if I'm wrong but I imagine that at least it's the feeling that I got out of reading that chapter was how much uh, you took him as a, as a as an intellectual how how much that world uh, needed to be taken seriously and use uh, use it to foreground everything that comes later. Your understanding is spot on. That's exactly what I was trying to do, which was provide a intellectual platform for readers to get into the world of Kofi Donko as Kofi Donko might have imagined uh, and viewed his particular social and intellectual landscape. In other words, I wanted to be able to um, look at how the spiritual forces combined with organic medicines were deployed um, in the communities that he served. And I also wanted to, um, in a larger sense, um, push back on a lot of the anthropological and sociological literature 
um, about Ghana or the former Gold Coast and even West Africa at large, the idea that, again, these were largely superstitious and um, unlearned uh, individuals rather than people who had, again, very empirical, very historicized um, you know, intellectual groundings. In other words, by following the history of these spiritual forces that have their own biographies, their own histories, we can, for instance, track the historical movement of the Akan Bono peoples to which Kofi Donko belonged in real time. In other words, we can actually look at the migratory patterns of its people because wherever they went and settled uh, with, within this um, you know, probably 50 to 60 mile radius, they had to establish or they chose to establish these um, relationships with these spiritual immaterial forces called abusum. And these abusum had to be um, domesticated through the building of physical shrines uh, or busum fie for them, as well as a range of rituals. And I must note, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, that Akan women or Bono women play a central role in the creation or formation of towns and villages and settlements, because it is they who had established one particular um, um, shrine object, which is the Nyamidria, which is a tree whose branches are cut, and, and that tree has about three or four prongs. And sitting inside the prong, once, once that branch is put into the soil, uh, is a calabash with eggs and medicine. And that sits in front of the house of the uh, founding uh, woman. And uh, it commemorates her as, as the founder for the settlement in the village. And she's also the one who is a custodian, along with her closest kin, for the spiritual forces of that village or that community. And so in many ways, we're able to track the uh, movement through culture and time of the Bono Akan peoples by looking at the uh, biographies of these spiritual forces and the healers who cared for them. And so there's a number of new perspectives we get from thinking about African history, African deep history, for which we don't have um, sources from Europeans because A, they're latecomers, and B, when they are there, they're uncomprehending about what they see and hear. And these are societies also that do not have Islamic manuscripts or Ajami manuscripts, which means that we have to look at other sources, um, especially when archaeology can only give us guesswork, right? And so looking at the history of these historical forces allows us to not only historicize those forces, but allow us to track the movement of these people and settlement patterns, but also how they began to build community, how they build societies uh, based upon these spiritual forces and therefore these um, humanistic values that flow out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in a way, I feel like in doing so, you, um, I mean, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but, you know, I, w I would like to continue to build into this exercise that, that uh, you do in the book and like really taking these ideas as, uh, as almost like a political philosophy. You know, these are alternative ways of thinking about society and community that uh, like you will describe later in the book were somehow um, sort of sidestep uh, when uh, in, in, in at the time when people were thinking about nation building or, or, or uh, sort of larger or in, in the way in, in the way that Europeans thought about it more sophisticated forms of community while these were in existence and had a history and had a, a, a complex uh, sort of intellectual uh, uh, history of, of their own um, so you you work your way into uh, after that sort of a grounding chapter you work your way into sort of like the the, the homelands you know you, you talk about the, the history of the Chakiman uh, and Karasa um, Asante and and how all they start to build from the early 19th late 19th century into um, the 20th century can you tell us about these communities uh, and you know how you follow this tangle web of this political tangle web between this um, Takiman, Nakarasa, and Asante? Sure. Those entanglements uh, form not only the backdrop for Kofi Donko, but they form the backdrop for 
effectively the transitionary period uh, between the sovereignty of Akan societies, most prominently the Asante um, Empire, in this case, Asante Mayan, based in the capital of Kumasi, but of course having a much broader reach that in the 19th century extended beyond the current boundaries of the Republic of Ghana. And that backdrop was to um, serve, again, not only to elucidate Kofi Donko's individual and community story, but it was also to look at, you know, you know, what did this transition between having sovereignty and then losing sovereignty, at least by um, 1900, 1901, when the Asante um, mine uh, capitulated to British colonial rule, Kofi Donko belonged to um, all three of these communities in a way that first he was born in a village called Okumsu Dumasi in the um, province of Inkranza. Uh, Inkranza is to the east of Techiman. And he's born in that village, in that province. Um, and his mother, uh, however, is from um, Techiman. And so uh, he moves uh, in his very late adolescence to Techiman, and he spends the rest of his life there. And so um, I wanted to foreground his multiple belongings. He was also a member of the new uh, Gold Coast um, colony. And so he belonged to these different um, communities that had distinct relationships to each other. And so um, as I argue and I demonstrate in the book, uh, Kofi Donko offers us in this early you know, period of the late 19th, early 20th century, this moment of, well, the question of how did a number of African peoples um, move through the loss of sovereignty to um, direct imperialism? And what was that transition like for uh, ordinary underground peoples? And what I found is that um, Kofi Donko's case offered a unique one, not unique, but fascinating one, because his community, Techiman, was under two hegemons or two empires. One was the African Empire, which is the Asante Empire. The other was the British colonial empire. And so um, this was the, the layers involved. Uh, at the very top, according to the colonial structures, was the British Empire and its um, bureaucratic structures of district commissioners, of clerks, of the functionaries that are part of that system, right? And then below that is the Asante Empire that is not an empire anymore, but it's not really, um, you know, a full-blown subject. You know, it's treated by the British with both awe, respect, and distrust. And so Asante is still a quasi-empire because under Asante is Techiman and other um, communities. And so Kofi Donko is born into this dual hegemony, this dual colonialism, right? And it is this dual colonialism that really forms the, the backdrop for uh, a wide swath of people uh, in the Gold Coast. And really one of the important you know, imports or, or takeaways is that scholars often write and assume that the Gold Coast was one colony. In fact, it was imagined and administered at three distinct colonies. It was the Gold Coast colony proper in the southern portion on the coast and into the immediate hinterlands. Then there was a crown colony of Asante, of course, rooted in Kumasi, the uh, Asante Empire capital. And then there was a northern territory. That is those um, places that were uh, above the forest as you get into the grassland savannah and pushing further on north. Um, to the border with contemporary um, Burkina Faso. And so these three colonies were viewed uh, by the um, colonial administration um, as such, where the Gold Coast colony on the coast was seen to be the bastion that is the locus of uh, Christianity, of commerce, and of the morality that was most closest to what the British preferred. Asante, again, was viewed with, as, as the so-called noble savage. That is, you know, yes, they have this uh, complex and uh, sophisticated you know, cultural forms and the history of an empire state, um, but they, not, they should not be trusted. Um, they, they do not fully accept their subjugated position. 
but there was still a respect and awe there for them, right? And then finally, the Northern Territories, as they were, was viewed as sort of the backwaters, you know, economic backwater, cultural backwater, as, as barbaric, as primitive, and of course, as the home of the more Islamicized portions of the tripartite colony, the three colonies by the British. Kofi Donko um, worked with, traveled through, and in fact, uh, engaged healers um, both in the forests as well as in the northern savannah region. So um, setting up this, this, this entanglement uh, that was more the approximate to the, how it was on the ground was important for me to give the reader a sense of, again, um, not only the backdrop to, to appreciate Kofi Donko's layered story, but also to appreciate the story of people like Kofi Donko who were uh, farmers, who were rural people, and who were in the majority in what became eventually the Republic of Ghana. I think the other really important um, function or, or takeaway from this chapter is this uh, this idea of uh, uh, like a place, uh, Tachaman as a place where uh, different places meet, you know, like this um, uh, uh, kind of frontier area. Um, to use that term, um, and to some extent how there's this sort of culture of transitioning from one place to another, uh, it becomes a very important um, uh, feature even of Kofi Donko's life. Um, so when you move, for instance, into, into chapter three, three and you look at uh, in, this, in this larger context, and in, in trying to understand the, the, the transitions between the larger context and the more local context, uh, the specific issues of spirituality, health, uh, started to be affected precisely because this place was a place of transit, you know, between uh, different regions and and, and obviously even between different ideas. Um, how does this particular position as a place of transit, as a place of exchange, um, becomes affected and how these notions of religion and health and education start to change as a result of, of, of this position. Well, you're absolutely correct. Tachiman was and is a crossroad town. Um, it sits at the edge of the um, tropical, um, dense tropical forest, and it faces north the um, grassland savannah. And so uh, it is literally between two ecologies, once more, two empires, as it were, as well as um, it is a uh, crossroads town uh, that you know has access to these these, these worlds between the um, what was then evolving um, Christianized portions of the South, and even then it was very much contested, and then of course the more Islamicized portions of the North, which was uh, it too was contested, but in a different way. Um, and so matters of spirituality, um, culture and schooling take on, you know, the views of the colonial empire. And so, for instance, many of the government schools that were established in the early 20th century, most were in the Gold Coast colony. That is the coastal area, the Atlantic um, coastline and its immediate hinterlands. Uh, and then you get some very few in Asante because there was this pushback from the leadership in Asante mine that. Um, these schools, which were, which doubled as churches, uh, and in many times tripled as both church, school, and clinic, that these edifices were a threat to the, um, authority of those in power in Asante mine, threatened that their power and authority was rooted in their own cultural platforms and, uh, rituals and by uh, allowing the missionaries to establish the tripartite institutions of clinic, school, and church, it would undermine the, the political as well as um, spiritual basis, you know, for um, these indigenous authorities, right? And so Kumasi and, and leadership there pushed back. And Tetsuman, because of his distance from the coast and from Kumasi, Tetsuman is about two hours northwest of Kumasi, um, very few missionaries came there because of his distance proximity. But when they did come, for example, in the chapter, I write about the um, Bayesian missionary established a short-lived 
outstation in Incuranza, not far from the village of Kumsu Damasi, where Kofi Donko was born. But as I demonstrated in the chapter, um, success wasn't there. Um, there. There was a range of, of, of practical people who were not willing to supplant their own cultural ideas uh, and views and replace them with the one proposed by these Christian missionaries. And this is the undertow story in Ghana, because today in Ghana, because um, Pentecostalism reigns supreme, um, people are under the um, false belief that they have always been this Christian. They have always been this way, right? This is longstanding. But um, truth of the matter is the historical records that we have in, you know, to, to deal with, that uh, we have in front of us, tells a different story. And that's the story I wanted to tell, which is not to say that there wasn't Christian missionary success, because there were, and I document that. But I'm saying on a whole, um, there was more failure than success, and we have to account for both. Uh, rather than simply congratulating oneself for saying how Christian they have become, we have to be able to restore ourselves and explain um, why places like Techiman remained um, literally untouched. And when there was a missionary uh, dispatched to the region, why they failed. Uh, because in many cases, they did fail uh, in that region and why they failed in Kumasi for the most part up until maybe the mid 20th century. Uh, and so we have to explain that. And so that's what I try to do by showing that this the very strong links that people were making a conscious choice to remain devoted to their particular spiritual and cultural forms and the ideas uh, that underline them uh, rather than essentially be seduced by what the Christian missionaries had proposed. And that, that was a dialogue, that, that, that was a debate that was ongoing, and it was far from what people today want to imagine the past was like. And another issue that you bring up, and I think it's, uh, it's often not, it's often misunderstood, for instance, is in these moments of uh, uh, political transition uh, and in, in places like Tatiman, you can see uh, very significant changes, for instance, in the kinds of diseases that people are more exposed to. Um, and like when you describe, for instance, the, the, uh, the experience of, of, the, of influenza, uh, how the influenza um, epidemic advanced in this area or affected this area, but also how all of a sudden you have, uh, well, not all of a sudden, but gradually you start seeing uh, higher incidence of malaria. I think a lot of the times when we read about African history, we don't understand that even those elements, uh, we, we just assume that disease is a constant experience uh, in many African communities, but we don't understand that even that has to be historicized and that so much of it is connected to uh, a particular place and how that particular place, the geography of that particular place is changing uh, due to the changing politics around it. Um, and and to connect that even further into to what you discuss later in the book, uh, mostly in, in chapter four, uh, when uh, when Kofi uh, Donko uh, starts to become uh, you know becomes a healer and he continues to practice uh, uh, as a blacksmith, and he has he starts to develop all these different identities. How much of that is actually connected to this? sort of changing ecology of disease, you know, that had not been there all the time, but that is a result of, of, of this changing geography. Indeed. In fact, you, you raise uh, some very important issues, uh, not only for African history, but I think African studies um, in terms of the interdisciplinary, you know, um, insights that we can gain here in that um, it was precisely the colonial government's appetite and the world actually appetite for for bauxite, for cocoa, for timber, um, that literally and metaphorically disturbed the pristine and virgin forest um, in, in, in some very you know draconian and and, and even um, you know um, cannibalizing ways, just eating away at these ecologies. And so I give you and, and the listeners a concrete example. Um, because Ghana has these dense tropical lush forests, the forests, um, you can imagine, are like these uh, clusters of broccoli right, that are stacked together. And they provide a canopy or a big umbrella that blocks direct sunlight. And therefore, there's usually very thick undergrowth you know, on the forest uh, floor 
Uh, and because sunlight doesn't penetrate that easily, uh, it means that there's sort of a barrier, a protection, if you will, an immune system for the ecology. Now, by cutting down all these trees so rapidly and, and by the way they're not replanting as they're cutting down, um, they open up the sunlight, direct sunlight, hits the forest floor, hits the waterways, hits the streams, hits the ponds, hits these rivers. And what it does, it provides a perfect, almost a resort-like climate for the mosquitoes, particularly the Anopheles mosquitoes, that is the transmitter of the most deadliest form of malaria called phalliporum. And so um, warm water is a uh, resort, um, you know, for mosquitoes because they proliferate when there's moisture, in this case water, and there's warmth. And so by opening up the forest, literally, you opened up this, this vector for uh, a widespreading of uh, malaria. Now, malaria is always there, but, but as, as, as you poke at, the, 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 the chronicling of the disease through the records, particularly ones kept by the Holy Family Hospital, which was the main missionary hospital in the um, town of Techiman, um, they tracked these diseases every year through the patients that came through their doors. And so their records provide us with, you know, a sort of a uh, longitudinal study of, of how, um, you know, disease uh, mortality and morbidity, that is the, the range of death over time from the diseases. And it's very clear from the records, including other colonial records, that there's a direct link between the disturbance of the forest to the, uh, the, the, the reign of cocoa becoming king, the king cash crop. Um, to the destruction of not only um, these ecologies and, and, and the people that, and the animals that rely on those ecologies, but the undertold stories here is that healers rely on the medicines in those environments, right? And so um, they were affected. And how does that, you know, really matter? Because healers were the frontline, you know, healthcare workers in almost all the rural communities. In fact, even today, in, in the miracle majority uh, of African peoples, you know, at least below the Sahara Desert, uh, they are farmers and rural dwellers, and they rely on for much of their health care, their primary care through indigenous healers, even when there are uh, clinics that are established um, some miles away from their homesteads. And so these healers, like Kofi Donko, were the, were the physicians, were the healthcare workers, right? And it's funny, you, you bring up the, interesting, excuse me, you bring up the influenza um, pandemic because we're now in a pandemic, COVID-19. And when influenza hit, uh, it came through the shipping lanes uh, because now not only the ecologies are open, but now the, the tripartite colony is open, right? So you have this, this sort of nakedness and exposure um, to the world economy and to world trade. And that, that's how influenza came through the ports of the former Gold Coast and it spread into the interior to places like Techiman on these new roads that are built literally on the, um, the backs of fallen trees um, and, and sacred you know, hills and mountains um, that are hacked uh, to literally build an infrastructure for the colonial economy. And so in many ways, you know, colonialism was not simply you know, just a you know, bunch of bureaucrats um, and, and missionaries. It, it was uh, a gutting, you know, sort of a, 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 an autopsy. <laughs> Uh, of, of indigenous cultures, indigenous landscapes uh, in ways that, that put people, you know, who are now vulnerable at deep risk because they had nothing in their antibodies to address not only the severity, but the rapid pace by which ecology were transformed uh, into these vectors for uh, a range of diseases, uh, exacerbating existing ones, bringing new ones, and giving people the anxiety and frustrations that I talk about leading to the recourse to a number of spiritual forces that came outside of Akan territories, particularly from Northern Ghana and Burkina Faso, that were very popular because they were brought in, these spiritual forces were brought in to ease a lot of the anxieties and fears, much like we're experiencing now in COVID-19, um, that were brought on by the colonial um, thrust and the transformation of society uh, that was warped by um, these intellectual, commercial, and political moves um, that colonialism ushered. 
And, and can you tell us a little bit more about how all of this, uh, we see uh, sort of these multiple um, uh, effects uh, influencing uh, Kofi Donko? Uh, I mean, in, in, you know, chapter four and five, to some extent, it, you you talk about this, this layered identities that he starts to develop. And, and in a way, I, I realize how much... Uh, this sort of speaks to this notion of the healer as uh, someone who's like, like you said, it's not just like a frontline um, healthcare worker, but it's a social worker, it's a counselor, it's a negotiator, um, and how those uh, functions are performed, not just uh, as a community leader, but as a husband and a father and as a, you know, uh, you know a, uh, sort of like a community uh, uh figurehead that uh, that people want to follow and trust. Uh, how will these things start to uh, appear in the figure of Kofi Donko as, as he uh, matures? Sure. As these forces begin to um, take their effect, you know, throughout the tripartite colony, uh, the effects are felt differently. Um, this is just really basic topography, meaning that the Northern Territories, they were, the British had a hands-off policy toward them, uh, which is unlike, for example, the policy of Frederick Lugard, uh, who was the governor for Nigeria, and his dual mandate policy in Nigeria, where there was, um, it was a, you know, in northern Nigeria, which is different northern Ghana, even though both places had, you know, uh, the presence of Islam and Islamicized communities. Um, in Nigeria, you had, of course, the Sokoto Caliphate, and you had a number of Islamicized polities there, where northern Ghana that wasn't so much the case. And so uh, as such, the British, you know, pretty much disregarded the Northern Territories as this backward, you know, place that was under-resourced, that wasn't quote-unquote developed. Um, and so they felt these forces quite differently than a Kofi Donko. Now, Kofi Donko, because of his positionality, again, between the forest and, and the savannah, um, he was able to calibrate you know, an understanding of what was going on through the um, people that he offered therapy, offered diagnosis and um, cared for. And so through the thousands of patients that came from both ecologies, from both, you know, halves of the tripartite colony, as it were, he was able to, you know, calibrate and have a, have a sense of, um, you know, what was happening to the peoples that were uh, most affected on the ground. And in one hand, you know, he provides this, this very important window, you know, to, um, you know, a world uh, of people who are trying to figure things out uh, as best as they can with their limited resources. On the other hand, he also provides, uh, as you say, leadership because he, um, doesn't get wrapped up in the politics, meaning the electoral politics of, 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 the, of, the, of the colonies. Uh, instead, what he does, um, he forms, for instance, uh, a um, healing organization uh, called Compagnia de Pa, um, which, is, which is a collection of healers uh, to, to basically stand up for the principles and the, and the trans- um, you know, humanistic values that they stand on against the assault of the missionary uh, institutions, the church, the clinic, the hospital, and of course, the school. And in many cases, these are one and the same. Um, and he also um, comes part of the, some of the first uh, efforts, you know, to uh, introduce biomedicine, uh, so-called Western medicine into the, into the area. In other words, he was so comfortable in his own skin, as it were, in his own cultural platform, in his own cultural ideas. Um, and in doing so, he partnered with the hospitals, the Holy Family Hospital that was established in Tetsuman in the 1950s. Uh, he also worked with this movement um, called the Bonachimpi movement that was supposed to argue for the, uh, the self-determination of the Bono peoples uh, living in Tetsuman, but also uh, elsewhere in that region. And so again, even though he didn't meddle in the electoral politics, uh, his presence was, was, was diffused in the number of efforts to safeguard what he saw as um, the right of his community's um, histories and ideas and institutions 
to exist rather than be wiped out or decimated by and replaced by these uh, ones that were proposed by the missionaries and the colonial government. <clears throat> and um, so as you move, as we move to independence, I, I believe that that's one of the uh, interesting contrasts that, that the book presents, you know, how uh, we usually this period when we read about um, African, uh, Ghanaian history in particular, but African history more general, it seems like, you know, the 50s and 60s are all independence all the time. Um, and like you said, it's not that that wasn't necessarily something that wasn't in, 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 uh, in the mind of, of men uh, like Kofi Donko, but not in the way that we are accustomed to thinking. I mean, there were uh, other ways in which uh, they were thinking about their own communities and what was needed and, and uh, how it, it was uh, to be provided. Uh, moving uh, a little bit further into the book, uh, you, you set aside this chapter where you talk about the experience of Kofi Donko uh, with uh, this anthropologist, Dennis Warren. I mean, you... you, you you approach the issue of anthropology even earlier. Um, uh, but so tell, tell us a little bit about um, why you felt that it was important to speak to this, um, to this episode in, in the life of Kofi Donko. Um, I, I thought it was very, very um, astute to talk about it uh, in terms of uh, Kofi Donko as an intellectual, like, like you said, rather than trying to make him into a victim uh, and, and present what you call this allegory uh, of what imperialism was and how it was experienced. Uh, can you just t- tell our, our listeners a little bit more about this? Sure. So Dennis Warren, or Dennis Michael Warren, um, entered the Peace Corps uh, in the um, early or mid-60s. Um, he graduated from Stanford University and degreed in biology. And as a Peace Corps uh, volunteer, he was stationed in the Techemon Secondary School and that's how he, um, you know, got to know um, Owusu Brimpong, uh, who is um, now a professor emeritus from the University of Ghana Institute of African Studies. Uh, but then Owusu Brimpong was one of Dennis Warren's uh, secondary school students. And Owusu Brimpong later becomes um, Dennis Warren's main collaborator. And the short story is that Dennis Warren... Um, doesn't have any clear idea. And I think most of us who, who have done the dissertation at first don't really have clear ideas either of, of what we ultimately want to do. Um, so in this nebulous, you know, world of Dennis Warren trying to figure out what he's going to do for dissertation, um, you know, he's brought, he hears about the, um, the powers of Kofi Donko and Ousu um, Brimpong is actually related to Kofi Donko. And so, um, Ousu Brimpong springs the idea that he'll introduce him to uh, his relative because he's a well-known healer and that, um, you know, that should help, you know, in the project. And so um, there's an initial meeting and that meeting you know, I, I, I lay out and that meeting kind of captures uh, the, the power dynamics and relationship between people like Kofi Donko and Dennis Warren and that Dennis Warren um, sees Kofi Donko and writes about Kofi Donko in the dissertation and in the articles and books that are that have come out of the dissertation, um, very fondly as Kofi Donko being the main informant. What I argue is that Kofi Donko played more than simply the role of informant, and Ousu Brenpong was more than just an assistant. Uh, Kofi Donko um, had provided Warren with a uh, a schema, a sort of a a, a um, a systematic categorization of more than 2,000 disease names, Lexeme, right? Um, Dennis Warren organizes these into uh, a 12-step system and, and presents it uh, in medical anthropology as the Bonotechimon disease, um, you know, therapeutic system, classification system, excuse me. And Warren, for his part, you know, he earns, um, you know, academic distinction. He becomes full professor eventually. He gets promotion. He uh, becomes a World Bank expert. And this is all based on the mental map, as I argue, of Kofi Donko, because Kofi Donko, uh, as Warren's writings, you know, say very explicitly, um, you know, what Warren wrote in terms of the root ideas come from Kofi Donko. And so Kofi Donko 
uh, I argue, suffered this very common fate, you know, in African studies and African history, where Africans are tagged as informants, um, not as experts. And there's a big difference, whereas the, um, you know, the European or white anthropologist, not always, but in this case, uh, it fits, um, goes to the field, gets the data, and essentially uh, puts a footnote or two to his or her informants and assistants when, in fact, they, the researcher, are not the experts. People like Kofi Donko are the experts, but they're not they're not recorded or archived as such. And that's why I wanted to flush out this relationship as an allegory for essentially how African studies was born. Because African studies was born in the same period of African nation states receiving their political independence. And so I'm playing on the, the, this, this idea of independences, you know, being both fraught, both fraudulent, as well as being, you know, filled with more complexity than we typically teach and write about it. And finally... Um, the relationship between, you know, Warren and, and Donko, again, I, I push back against seeing it solely as a matter of, you know, Kofi Donko being a victim or Wu Supreme Pong being a victim, who, by the way, did about 85% of all the work that was involved when Dennis Warren was doing his field work. Um, and I had a chance to go through Warren's papers, both at Iowa State and University of Iowa, where he taught. And so the records are very clear that, um, you know, the power relationship in terms of knowledge production is what Kofi Donko and Dennis Warren's relationship expose uh, for us to see very clearly. And much of this still continues in African studies today. I also think it's really interesting in terms of um, your conceptualization of Kofi Donko as a, as a, you know, a legitimate intellectual, just another interesting facet of the birth of African studies in, in African history, particularly, is this um, kind of illusion that intellectual history starts uh, at that moment, that, you know, that everything before that is sort of like, I don't know, the foregrounding or like a completely different chapter in intellectual history, rather than um, an understanding of how these different intellectual traditions meet uh, in this, like you mentioned, very unequal pa- power relationships. And by virtue of that inequality, one is casted as like the prehistory of intellectual history and the other one as like the legitimate history. Um, and, and and I believe that that's, a, a, that's a, like a very interesting facet of the historiography of the history of ideas in, in Africa. Um, okay, so do you move to, from that episode, we move to sort of like the more modern times, uh, finish ending with, um, the, uh, the death of, of Kofi Donko. And you characterize this more recent period as, uh, one of, um, uncertainty, um, and the role that Kofi Donko continues to play, uh, particularly as those uncertainties that were seeded uh, during the colonial period uh, continued in the post-independence period. Um, how do you see Kofi Donko's uh, role evolving? Well, Kofi Donko's role evolves um, with the transition to um, the Republic of Ghana being born. In 1957, March 1957, um, his, 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 his role uh, continues much the same. In fact, um, you know, Tom McCaskett made his argument. Uh, he has a, a, a wonderful uh, monograph called Asante Identities, where he looks at this, um, you know, relatively small, you know, community, town, village um, within Asante mine. And what he argued and what, what, I, what I saw as well is that this deep rupture um, that um, scholars have written about between um, so-called colonial and post-colonial um, periods uh, is greatly exaggerated. And so Kofi Donko essentially or effectively continued, as he did before, um, the, the so-called colonial period and into the period you know, thereafter. In fact, um, what I think Kofi Donko provides is an optic to see that transition less as rupture, less as transition, and actually more as a rearrangement of the relationships. In other words, the managers of the state um, change, but this, the structures, many of them remain in place. So, for example, as I point out, the 
um, Cocoa Board, right? Cocoa Marketing Board, uh, which was a major mechanism uh, of colonial rule because cocoa was what uh, buoyed the colony, the tripartite colony. That remained in place uh, under Kwame Nkrumah's uh, regime. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, for your listeners, being the um, uh, independence uh, prime minister and then president of a independent um, Ghana. Uh, it remained in place and it behaved in similar draconian ways. Um, and, and so um, I talk about how Kofi Donko and his family were part of the cocoa boom in the 30s and 40s. And of course, it, it's collapsed, um, you know, um, thereafter. And um, cocoa continued to essentially be the prime commodity. And this is one of the criticism of, of the emphasis on cocoa and, and by extension, the retaining of these colonial structures in independent Ghana. And so by not having a diversified economy um, in, in part, you know, had undermined, you know, many of the so-called developmental projects uh, that Nkrumah had envisioned, um, notwithstanding the Akosombo Dam, which was a major hydroelectrical power um, project that, that, you know, still exists today. Um, but there were many others that were, that were in the work, but they could not be, sufficiently uh, managed or, f- or funded and come to fruition because Nkrumah also uh, was very apt to um, extend Ghana's um, you know, treasury to uh, independence movement in Africa. Um, some say interference in, in terms of the perspective from Nigeria. <laughs> um, so um, my point is that the retaining of these economic and political structures simply meant that Nkrumah and the others were simply the new managers in the same system, uh, rather than independence being a systematic transformation or change that, that brought on um, new or, or uh, revised forms of, of structures of, of, of power and policy. And Kofi Donko and his community, you know, sort of, ex, you know, exposes all of that, you know, for us to, us to see in, in very sharp relief. Oh, and uh, I also wanted you to to sort of elaborate a little bit of that, um, how you point out very clearly that irony of Nkrumah uh, basically talking about uh, trying to create a, a new independent country on the basis of of its past, of its uh, of its uh, sort of intellectual traditions, but at the same time, pretty much dismissing those intellectual traditions uh, uh, quite uh, substantially. On the basis of that, I also wanted you to sort of speak from that, uh, so from that irony to the larger relevance uh, of Kofi Donko. And you have a a very uh, persuasive epilogue uh, where you talk about uh, to what extent uh, the, the history of Kofi Donko allows us to see alternatives, alternatives to, to what we have grown to believe is the model of the nation uh, or the, the, the Christian nation or the capitalist nation uh, and how these pre-existing um, systems of community building, of community caring, do in fact offer us an alternative way of thinking about how to make community and how to care for community. Sure thing. Uh, so indeed, I, I do argue, and I tried in epilogue to lay out this idea of forced intimacy. That is, um, colonialism was distilled white supremacy in the sense that it tied together um, these various ideologies and, 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 and enforced policies that forced people into relationships otherwise they perhaps would not do on their own. It exposed, as we discussed early on, ecology, they exposed communities, essentially made them bare and naked um, and that exposure, um, was forced. And so much like, you know, any abusive relationship where there's forced intimacy, um, there's a sense that, um, the abuse, um, according to the literature tends to, um, you know, have a, um, schizophrenic relationship with their abuser, where on the one hand, they, um, want to get rid of the abuse, uh, from the abuser but they don't necessarily want to get rid of the abuser. And, and, and it's, it's, that, it's that schizophrenic uh, you know, um, outcome um, that made, um, as you mentioned a moment ago, Kwame Nkrumah, I think fascinating, but also frustrating in that 
um, he and the so-called big six, you know, that crafted the new nation state, um, they, their idea of African culture was, was received from the Achimoto College, the government-run colonial school. Uh, it wasn't from the villages. It wasn't from, you know, as it were, their mother's breast milk. <laughs> um, and in many ways, it disregarded the nation's um, farming, rural, non-Christian majority, which Kofi Donko was a part. So Ghana 957, that was the, that was the texture of, of, of the tripartite colony. Instead, uh, what was put in place was this idea of the nation. And I argue that the nation, um, nation building is, and decolonization are not the same. Uh, and decolonization uh, is definitely intellectual and a political project, but the nation is only one of several outcomes. And I argue that um, Kofi Donko provided you know, the um, basis for a non-national decolonized possibility because he had lived and worked through two empires, national borders, ecologies, politics, and racial religious ideologies. And at the base of it, he cared for human beings because they were human. That is, he did not, um, were, he was not seduced by the gender, class, and other divisions that we find, you know, you know, um, traumatizing your current modern nation states. And that's what Nkrumah and others pick. They pick the flawed archetype when there was already, you know, templates there that could could have been used. And more importantly, this is not simply trying to, you know, um, backtrack in time to say that, hey, he should have done this. I'm saying that at the time in which these moves were made toward independence, all he and others had to do uh, were look simply at their population, you know, that they mirrored this farming, you know, rural, non-Christian majority. And instead, um, you know, he chose otherwise. But that decision is shaped by the fact that um, of his Christian upbringing, shaped by the fact that of the orthodoxies playing out in the coast. In other words, he's both a, um, a champion of, of decolonization, but also a victim of it. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Gnadu, um, I've taken quite a lot of your time already. Um, before we finish, could you let us know uh, what you're working on? What are your current projects? Sure. Well, it's quite a bit, but I, I'll try to boil it down into uh, <laughs> into into a few. Um, this world keeps me out of trouble. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm working on three book projects and they all uh, have to do with the 16th century. Uh, one is a, um, a complete rethinking, actually a new history of the um, Mina Gold Coast, as it were, um, from the 16th, well, 15th, late 15th until the 17th century. Um, and I'm looking at the, the, un, the unlikely and, and really um, ironic story of two places that are peripheral on, on, on their own economic, um, you know, regions, um, uh, um, which is Portugal and the Gold Coast, meaning Portugal was the economic backwater of, of um, Monaco, Europe, and the Gold Coast was peripheral to the um, Savannah and Chihelian empires of West Africa. However, both became global from their encounter and, and relationship you know, over those centuries. And so I want to tell that story that I think is little known or understood. The second is a, a collection um, you know, from my work in the archives of over about 200 Portuguese sources from the late 15th into the mid 16th, mid 17th century um, in English translation for the first time and with annotations and the like. Um, and that one is, uh, I already have a contract with the um, British Academy in, in Oxford for that one. And the third one, which I'm looking forward to, is uh, three stories of three African women from the Gold Coast in the 16th century. Um, I haven't decided on the title yet, but I'm working on these three stories. And I really want to do is fill an important gap, which is that we know very little about women, period, in 16th century. And we know even less about African women, ordinary African women in that period. And so I want to be able to, um, you know, really deeply get into these three stories, uh, rub them against each other and see what we insights we can gain about um, the their lives and the world in which they lived. And I want to do so to push back against this tendency to use fiction or fictionalize, you know, to say that we don't have the sources. In fact, we do have the sources, but we have to be uh, put in the work <laughs> uh, because reading 15th century Portuguese is not easy. 
Uh, but we also have to be creative in terms of how we, um, you know, gain these insights and these lived experiences that are buried in essentially um, what appears to be chicken scratch. Wow. Well, all three sound like great projects. And I think we look forward to hearing more from them uh, as they come to fruition. Well, thank you very, very much uh, for taking the time to speaking to us. I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon again. Thank you very much for having me.